Welcome to the Pacific Northwest edition of America Outdoors Radio. We've got a fast-paced hour of fishing, hunting, and conservation covering the nation and the Northwest, including 13 extra minutes of local content you'll only hear on Seattle's Sports Radio, KJR. I'm at Sportsman's Cove Lodge in southeast Alaska this week, so the main show is going to be a best-of edition, but before I left, I recorded some fresh content for you that you get to hear exclusively on KJR. We're going to be talking to Kyle Jones. He is the part owner of Jones Sport Fishing. He's got an upper Columbia River salmon fishing report from Brewster and Pateras, where the sockeye and Chinook fishing is very good. As for how you catch those sockeye, Bob Loomis with Max Lure will answer that question at the end of our show during an extended Max Minute. If you need salmon gear, whether it be rods, reels, line, tackle, bait, or scents, the place to go is the same, your Puget Sound area sportsman's warehouse stores. You'll find them in Everett, Silverdale, Puyallup, and Federal Way, and they are well-stocked with what you need to be successful on the water. Are you looking for some things to do on the water this week? Here's a few suggestions. Number one, top water fishing. Now, bass is really what comes to mind first here, and both morning and evening when the sun is off the water are prime times to be casting a top water popper, a frog, a zero spook, or a whopper plopper. If you haven't had the pleasure of seeing a bass explode out of the water to take that lure, you are missing out. And speaking of missing out, you'll be missing out if you make the classic mistake of setting the hook as soon as you see that fish come out of the water to take your lure because you'll be taking it right out of that fish's mouth. Wait for the feel of the fish, then set the hook. Easier said than done, I know, but trust me on this. Topwater fishing isn't just for bass either. You can downsize your offering and even cast small poppers on fly rods for both crappie and bluegill, which can be a whole bunch of fun if you get into a school of these fish. And of course, there's fishing with a dry fly for trout too. Everyone has their favorites, and for me, I'm very old school. Set me up with an elk hair caddis, a parachute adams, and a royal wolf. Take me up to a mountain lake, and there's a good chance I'll be getting into a mess of rainbow, brookies, or cutthroat trout. Another thing to do, small stream fishing. July is a great month to wade in from the bank and cast a fly or spinners or spoons for trout in smaller streams. There are a bunch throughout western and central Washington that have good populations of trout, and many of them don't get a whole lot of pressure outside of the Yakima River because everyone's after salmon this month. Number three, kayak and canoe fishing. Head to a pond or a small lake and explore it in depth with a fishing rod out of a kayak or a canoe. This is a really peaceful and intimate way of fishing. You'll probably see lots of wildlife where you're out there too, and you can literally get to places people in regular boats can't get to. Better still, no boat launch is required. Whether you're after trout, bass, or panfish, kayak and canoe fishing, it can be a whole bunch of very simple fun. Last but not least, consider catching some crawdads. These little freshwater lobsters are delicious and you can turn over rocks and catch them or do it the right way and set out some crawfish traps overnight at a lake or reservoir that has those crawdads in them. The limit for native crawfish is 10 pounds in the shell and you can set out a maximum of five traps. As to what to use for bait, fish parts always work well and Once you get a mess of them, enjoy an old-fashioned crawfish boil with crawdads, corn, lobster, and andouille sausage. Delicious. And with that, you are now in the know about what's hot. 
this week, and for that matter, this month, in the Pacific Northwest. That's your first local shot of the outdoors. Now let's see what's going on across the nation. Fishing and fun. That's what you'll find at Mardon Resort. Come to sunny eastern Washington and bring your RV or rent a cottage, cabin, or room at our newly upgraded resort at the south end of Potholes Reservoir. Get tackle and provisions at our general store. And after you're done fishing, hanging out at our swim beach, or boating for the day, enjoy dinner and a drink at the beach house. Find out more at mardonresort.com. That's mardonresort.com, where the fish bite and we don't. BackcountryHunters.org. Join the fight for our public lands and waters today. We're at Sportsman's Cove Lodge in Alaska this week, so this is a special best of edition of America Outdoors Radio. It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to a very special edition of America Outdoors Radio. As we told you a few weeks ago, we were blessed to actually win four Excellence in Craft Awards from the Outdoor Writers Association of America in the radio and podcast category. Now, there's over 700 members of this organization all over North America, and there's some really good broadcasters and podcasters that enter this contest every year. And to think that we actually got... First place in four out of six categories, absolutely amazing. That's why we're going to share those interviews with you today. One of them is with Steve Rogers. He's got some great advice for buying your first bass boat. We'll also talk to Walker Smith with Wired to Fish about fall bass fishing misconceptions. Will Brantley, writing for Field and Stream, will tell you about tag teaming for turkeys. And our first guest is doing some very special work in Wyoming, getting some kids out fishing. So, pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to listen to some award-winning conversations. You're back in with America Outdoors Radio, and our next stop today is Sheridan, Wyoming. That's where we're introducing you to Joey Pittman. He's the man behind Joey's Fly Fishing Foundation. He's got quite the background. In addition to overseeing this really cool nonprofit, he's got a background as working in mental health. He's got a background as a teacher, and he's a fly fishing guide to boot. Joey, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your efforts to introduce kids to the joys of fly fishing in nature through the work that Joey's Fly Fishing Foundation is doing? Well, honestly, as you know, you can hear it's Joey's fly fishing, but in all reality, it's really not about fly fishing at all. It's about the mentorship that comes through fly fishing. Fly fishing is just our vehicle. Gotcha. So we bring in kids from all over the U.S. It's an absolute blast, and we introduce them first to the Bighorn Mountains here in Sheridan, Wyoming. It's a pretty cool place. It sits right on the border of Montana, Wyoming. And we've got some of the most incredible rivers, from the Bighorn River up north to the Platte River down south, and then a plethora of just different creeks throughout the Bighorn region. So kids come in pretty bright-eyed and, and bushy-tailed, you know. They want to catch a fish. Sure, <laughs> sure, absolutely. So, but before they can do that, they have to build their own custom rod. Ah. All right. So they come in, they sit down for four days, 
and they, they build their rod. All right, then they take their insect and aquatic habitat classes. Then after that, they tie their own flies. Then they go on an adventure fly fishing trip throughout the state of Wyoming called our Wyoming Game and Fish Cut Slam Challenge, where the kids have to try to catch all four native cutthroat trout in Wyoming. It's an absolute blast. You know, parents come along, kids come along. But the fun part about it is, is I've been working with a, a group of youth here in my community. You know, I always try to keep my kids first. That's the name of the game here. Sure. Um, you know, as, as my mentor always tells me, if you're helping one kid, you know, Joey, you got a foundation. You know, well, we've been able to put over 2,000 kids through. I mean, it's, it's been pretty magical. I think so. it's wonderful. Joey, let me ask you a question here. You know, sure. look at, looking at your website and what you just described, there's kind of several different components to what you do in terms of programs. Number one is the rod sure. building. Number yep. two, you have summer day camps. And number three, you've got this cut slam challenge. So do kids come to Sheridan and do all of this at once? Or is the rod building maybe in the off season, the summer day camps during the summer and the cut slam challenge in conjunction with those summer day camps? Yes. And so it's, it's a menu of services. What would you like to do? Like I would say everybody, you know, like everybody likes to fish. They just don't know it. You know, some, <laughs> some of the kids, they just like coming and working with their hands. Sure. You know, it's very tactile. You know, I call it the proprioception that's going on with it. So they're figuring out with their hand-eye coordination to, you know, that mind, body, that spirit side of things. But there's nothing more confidence building when you build your own custom rod. But the artistic creativity that comes along with it, the kids pick out their own grips, their own handles, their own threads. And then after that, they sign and number their rods. So they're a part of something now. Oh, and that, wow. that's the best part about it is. And yes, as you just asked, that is in the fall months. So that's what keeps us going through the fall, you know. But um, we have a, a 2,000 square foot shop here on Main Street. You know, that story is just crazy in itself. How my, my kids and my dad and all my buddies, we remodeled this old historical building. And the word on the street from the kids, it's called the Trout House. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Sheridan, Wyoming, are Only the kids going to call a building the Trout Wyoming, House. My friend. But the kids come down after school, they come down, and it's not even about that. You know, they come down, they volunteer, they help, they pick up a broom, they help do dishes, I mean, whatever, you name it. And they hang out here from after school till sometimes 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. Sometimes we have some potluck dinners down here for them, and they just have a place to be. I was fortunate when I was a little kid, not now these day and age, but I used to go to the VFW a lot with my dad and my grandpa, right. you know, grandpa. Granted, I couldn't go into the BFW part of the bar and watch them play pool, <laughs> but I could sit in the bingo room and go grab a Shirley Temple and then just watch them. You know, right. that was their club, and they, and to this day, they still call it the club. So when people ask, like, how did this thing become so successful? I go, I created a BFW for the kids. <laughs> when when folks come from out of the area to attend the summer day camps and go through the Cut Slam Challenge, where are they staying and, and how long does this take? The fun part about it is is they base camp here for one day, you know, and they just get acclimated, you know, you know, I mean we've said it, you know, seven thousand feet up here in the you know, the Bighorn Mountains, you know. So they come here, you know, I like for the kids to come in, the families stay here, eat here, sleep here, you know, and it just helps our economy. Sure. And then after that, um, we go on a five day trip across the whole state of Wyoming. And it's a blast. And so what we do is we set up, you know, where it's already pretty designed for them with the campsites and it's a whirlwind i mean it's no joke i mean you're going on a 1500 trip across the state you know and you're going to go and catch those native cutthroats you know and there's 10 rivers that are involved with that and that's an absolute blast but more than that they're seeing historical sites throughout wyoming you know I mean, there's 30 to 40 miles in between each town, so there's a lot of open space. But yeah, so it, it's all camping do-it-yourself. 
What's the target range in terms of age that you're working with here? 12 to 18. Perfect. You know, kids that age are so impressionable for good or Mm -hmm. for bad. I I think it's great that you're going that route. One other thing we need to talk about here, we're rolling into fall and it's time to raise some funds to continue your operations. Tell me about the Fall Fly Fundraiser and how some of our listeners might be able to participate even from a distance. All right. I appreciate that. It's pretty simple. So the kids come back and I take my 12 top kids that committed to the organization all right, they built their rods, they tied their flies, they completed their cut slam. We have a big dinner for them. Well, this year, we can't really do that, you right. know, with COVID and everything. So we're going to have an online virtual ceremony for them, you know, just, yeah, celebrate them is what I call it. Friday night, September 18th, we celebrate the kids. We bring in our company sponsors. We bring in the 12 kids, their parents, about only about 100 people. Usually in the past, we have anywhere from four to 500 people, you know, show up for this event. It's pretty cool. They get their cut slam certificates and they actually get to meet their donor and sponsor who helped them pay for this this trip. Saturday morning, though, is the fun part. All right. Saturday morning, I have six private ranches that open up on the front range of our Bighorn Mountains. And these kids and these adult sponsors get a square off for three hours on a private creek. Biggest fish wins. Oh. And we have a little fly fishing tournament for them. And I, I like competition. Competition's healthy. Yes. <laughs> Makes uh, you feel alive. Yeah, I'm working with kids that, you know, they're not playing basketball. They're not playing football in the fall. They're, they're really not really doing anything. They're just kind of hanging out and fishing, you know? Yep. But I think a little bit of competition's very healthy. You know, that's how I grew up. Very competitive family. You know, my athletics paid for my college. You know, things like that. So, but it's just making these kids, you know, just really, there's nothing better when somebody invests into you. So that night, a lot of people invest into us. So it's great. Joey, you make me want to be a kid again, especially in Sheridan, Wyoming, and having having somebody like you around. I'm I'm a little bit over 18, though, so I'm going to have to just have a cup of coffee with you when we meet. But folks, in the meantime, if you want to find out more about Joey's Fly Fishing Foundation, go to their website. You'll find it at joeysflyfishing.com. That's joeysflyfishing.com. Check it out and consider making a donation. Yes, you just heard, are doing some incredible work there in Wyoming, helping kids in a great way, not just to learn to fly fish and appreciate nature, but as you just discovered, a whole lot more. The website, one more time, joeysflyfishing.com, and any donation will help. Joey, thanks so much for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you, guys. Take care. Campers, adventure seekers, hunters, and foodies. No matter the lifestyle, we can all agree on one thing. Great food and great people are worth remembering. At Camp Chef, we don't just make grills. We create each product knowing that a warm meal is always better when it's shared with those we love. Learn more about Camp Chef grills, smokers, and portable cooking equipment at CampChef.com. That's CampChef.com for a better way to cook outdoors. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstances, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the darkest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. 
Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true. To provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities, Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. That's huntofalifetime.org. Why book at Sportsman's Cove Lodge? Why is Alaska like no other place on earth? It hasn't changed in thousands of years. From the way you get here on a float plane to the way you go out with the guides and the boats, it's just a professional experience. And I said, this is as good as it gets. I said, if you can't catch fish here, you can't catch fish anywhere. Your experience with us will leave you speechless. Book now at alaskasbestlodge.com. Hot summer nights mean hot morning fishing for sockeye here in the Northwest, and Max Lure Company has got what you need to catch a limit with the Double D Dodger and two great sockeye rigs. The Double D Dodger has a unique, fast, slow action and can be fished away from the boat without a side planer. The Cha-Cha Sockeye Rig and Double Whammy Sockeye Pro both feature a patented smile blade and two stout red hooks that won't let go of that salmon when it bites. Max Lure Company, getting you into the sockeye this summer. Fishing and fun. That's what you'll find at Mardon Resort. Come to sunny eastern Washington and bring your RV or rent a cottage, cabin, or room at our newly upgraded resort at the south end of Potholes Reservoir. Get tackle and provisions at our general store. And after you're done fishing, hanging out at our swim beach, or boating for the day, enjoy dinner and a drink at the beach house. Find out more at MardonResort.com. That's MardonResort.com, where the fish bite and we don't. Northwest Oregon's Tillamook Coast is not only the place to go for cheese and ice cream, but also for outdoors fun. Hook into a salmon in Tillamook Bay or one of the rivers flowing into it. Harvest tasty clams from our bays and pull up a crab reen or pot full of big dungeness crab. Visit our parks, walk the beaches, explore our forests, and enjoy our coastal communities. You are going to love it here. Plan your trip today at TillamookCoast.com. That's TillamookCoast.com. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you with not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Springtime is here, and that means it's time to talk spring turkey. And what better person to chat with than Will Brantley, the hunting editor for Field and Stream, who's got a great article about turkey hunting with your buddy in this latest edition of the magazine. Will, great to have you back on the air. Well, thank you for having me. So, Will, the, the whole premise of your article is go hunting with a buddy and increase your chances of bagging a gobbler or two. I like this because just about everything I ever read about turkey hunting focuses on the individual turkey hunter. I don't ever think I've seen an article before that basically talks about tag-teaming turkeys. 
Well, there are a lot of uh, good strategies that you can employ when you are hunting with a buddy. And, you know, I probably do most of my turkey hunting alone. And I I think a a lot of serious turkey hunters would concur. But when you find another turkey hunter who you really work well with and you hunt well together, not only is it more fun to be out there with, with somebody, some of the strategies you can use can be pretty effective, too. Well, let's run through some of those strategies, and we're going to set them up with scenarios, just like you've done in the article. And I'm just going to read right from the article and the scenarios you have. The first one is called the early season hang-up. You and your buddy have been scouting a flock of turkeys coming to the same field every day during the week before the opener. There's a tom, a few jakes, and a dozen hens, and they always wind up in the northeast corner of the field after fly-down. So, you're waiting there in a ground blind with a jake and three hen decoys at first light. Slam dunk, right? Except the turkeys don't follow the script. Instead, they pitch into the field, stand out of range, and stare at your spread for a while, ignoring your calls, and then they just walk the other way back into the woods. So, what do you do the next day when you go back? Well, you know, as you can imagine with a situation this specific, um, it, it came from a, from a real hunt that some buddies and I had in Nebraska last year. And it was a, kind of a pretty typical early season situation where you do a lot of times see bigger flocks of birds together. You know, you'll see a gobbler strutting with several hens and several jakes. And uh, a lot of times earlier in the year, there's a lot of the actual breeding takes place at that time, really kind of before the birds split off and disperse and the hens go to nest. And what what you'll run into, you'll see turkeys come into the same spot in the field every day, and you do think, man, I uh, if I just get in there and set up and set my decoys up and put up a blind, you know, I'm bound to kill one of them. But those birds are coming into that field every day, and, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think as a general rule, turkeys aren't usually spooked by ground blinds, but if they see something new in a field that they've been coming to every day and this spread of decoys there that's not moving even though it may not spook them, they may get suspicious of it. And that is a situation a lot of times where birds just may not come into your setup. And um, in a way, you, you've almost kind of overplayed your hand. And so I think the best thing to, to do there is remember that, you know, hey, even though those turkeys aren't coming in, they're not necessarily spooked. And the best thing you can do to start with is just to sit there and leave them alone. And you might have to sit there and let those turkeys clear the field. They're going to move off somewhere, and they may be there for a while after fly down, strutting and picking around and doing their thing. Once they're gone, uh, one of the best things that you can do, and you can either do this the next morning or maybe that afternoon, pull that blind out, pull your decoys out, and make that spot as natural as you can. And probably one hunter needs to stay in that spot where you first set up because that's where the turkeys have, that's where your scouting has shown that they want to be. And chances are pretty good that if they feel comfortable, they're going to come back there. Right. But that hunter, the, the one hunter probably needs to stay right there. And then the other hunter needs to keep a close eye on where the turkeys leave the field. You know, turkeys are kind of creatures of habit. They'll a lot of times enter and exit a field in the same general area. And so it's a good move for the other hunter to make a move and kind of set up to maybe intercept them as they're coming back to that field. And you might try sticking out like a single Jake decoy, maybe a single hen decoy, something that's that's a little more subtle and just see if you can get that Tom's attention as he's coming back into the field. And, you know, if you kind of uh, split up and in a way you double your odds. So that's that's a really good way to kind of kill one of those field birds that seems like he's a creature of habit, but when you go to uh, take advantage of it, you know, he doesn't follow the script. So you change things up on him a little bit. And I'm guessing this worked in Nebraska? 
It did. It, it worked like a charm. So we actually ended up killing two turkeys that way. So, All right. We've got time for another scenario. And I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to this one. The property line strutter. You and your partner have been hearing a gobbler since daylight. And you finally spot him pulled up in a cattle pasture with a hen. Problem is, it's the neighbor's pasture where you don't have permission to hunt. To kill that tom, you need to coax him back over to your ground what do you do? This was another one that happened uh, last year in Florida. It was uh, on my first hunt of the year. And, yeah, I mean, this this obviously happens all the time, you know. Uh, you got a bird that's, that's hung up out in the neighbor's field, and um, you can't get him to come to you. And this is a technique that, that doesn't always work, but it's, it's the only one that I know of well, it probably works the most consistently of anything that I've tried. And so hopefully you've pre-scouted the area ahead of time and you know a place in this fence where a turkey is likeliest to cross. And, you know, a turkey will very rarely fly over a fence to come to you. I mean, they can, not to say that they don't, but most of the time they prefer to squeeze under it. So if there's a, a low spot in the ground where they can squeeze under the barbed wire or, you know, a spot where the wire is down, that's, that's the likeliest spot for a turkey to cross. And if you've got a bird that's out there in a pasture with hens, that's probably a bird that you can challenge, that you can challenge his dominance. And and he, you know, there's a good chance that he's going to respond to it. But what's hard to do is to just sit up next to the edge of the fence because you call him up to the edge of the fence and then he stops on the other side of it (laughs) and you still can't shoot him across it, even though he's in gun range. And so what works out well in this situation is for the shooter to actually set up 10, 15, 20 yards back behind the fence. And this is one of those things that, you know, uh, you really got to emphasize safety in this situation, obviously. The the person who's going to be doing the shooting, their shotgun needs to be laying on the ground pointed the opposite way for this. And because of what the the buddy is getting ready to do is going to explain why. But you take a a strutter decoy, one of the ones that's kind of hollowed out in the back like a I don't know, like a, a mojo scoot and shoot or, a, you know, a flex tone thunder chicken. One of the decoys that's made for, you know, reaping in an open field. And obviously, anytime you're doing this, you want to be extra careful. But um, assuming you're in a, in a safe area where it's open, uh, you're not worried about other hunters in the area maybe mistaking you for a gobbler. Your buddy then can take that reaper decoy and crawl toward the gap in the fence and do some calling Get that strutter's attention and move that decoy around, make it look like a strutting gobbler. And once you have that bird coming, and you can tell when they're, you know, when they're liking it and they're going to come, usually their head's going to turn kind of a bright white and they'll blow up and strut and start coming. As that bird is coming to you, the guy working the decoy just kind of starts crawling backwards and keeps crawling backwards. And very often that movement looks pretty realistic, and a lot of times you can pull that turkey right through that fence gap and ideally you time it so that when as you're coming back you then get in a spot where your buddy's safe to shoot he can work his gun into position then take the shot and you can bag the bird it worked like a charm on that turkey in florida last year except that we were trying to film the hunt for uh for an online story and by the time we got back we could have killed the turkey but we couldn't get it on camera so we had to let it go but it was uh (laughs) it it definitely worked out and it's a lot of fun to, to see that happen well those are some great tactics for some pretty common scenarios and folks if you want to read about some more scenarios and more tactics to use to bag a gobbler just pick up the on the road edition to field and stream it features wild friendships and adventures in the field and on the water check out this great article by will brantley and all sorts of other great information in there too will always a pleasure to have you on america outdoors radio absolutely i enjoy it thank you 
planning a day at the range or plinking targets with your friends, or maybe you're looking to do some small game hunting with a rimfire rifle. Either way, they're going to be impressed when you show up with a Henry Golden Boy lever action rifle. This beauty has a brass light finish, a wooden stock and grip, and a blue 20-inch octagon barrel that makes this rifle handle great, and it is accurate too, especially for offhand shooting. Want to up your Golden Boy rifle game? You can order a deluxe engraved edition or one with a personalized inscription. Like every rifle manufactured by Henry Repeating Arms, this has a lifetime guarantee. Find out more about the world-famous Golden Boy Rifle and order a free catalog, too, at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com for Henry Repeating Arms, made in America and a proud sponsor of America Outdoors Radio. From well-known saltwater hotspots to hidden alpine lakes, Northwest Fishing Reports, Sundays at 5 p.m. on Q13 Fox. Ready for more local fishing and hunting? You got it. It's the Pacific Northwest edition of America Outdoors Radio. Right here on Seattle's Sports Radio, KJR. Next up, we're checking in with Kyle Jones, the co-owner of Jones Sport Fishing. He is up by Brewster and Pateras. He's been fishing for both Chinook salmon and sockeye in the upper Columbia River. Kyle, great to have you back on the air. How's the fishing been? The fishing's been really, really good. Yeah, it's just been consistently good. Now, the limit, I understand, is what, six salmon, or is it six sockeye plus a Chinook or two? No, it's six salmon total, so you can come at that, and four of those can be sockeye, and gotcha. two of them can be adult hatchery Chinook. So, you know, you know, you can end up with four sockeye, a couple of jacks, or four sockeye, and a couple of adult Chinook, or, you know, however the mix works out, but it's six total. Well, I know the summer Chinook run is better than expected, and the sockeye run is off the charts better than expected with well over 500,000 fish returning up the Columbia River. How is the size this year? I mean, I know sometimes you get them really small, and that's always a danger sign for the next year. How are they looking? They're beautiful. They're in really good shape. Most of them are right around that, like, 21-plus inch mark. Last year, we had a pile of them that were really little, right. and I think those were jacks. And so this year, we've got a bunch of fish that are they're all seem to be pretty darn nice fish. Now, you were telling me something before we went on the air. You know, most folks will set up one way for sockeye and another way for Chinook, but you're fishing for both at the same time in the early morning. Yeah, so we figured this out a couple of years ago that during the early part of the run, we don't have to pick whether we're going to target Chinook or we're going to target Sockeye. We've figured out that we can very effectively fish both at the exact same time. And so how we're doing that is we're running a standard kind of pro troll, you know, 11 inch 360 flasher. And then we're running, you know, like a 30 inch leader to a spinner. And then we're just simply tipping that spinner with a coon shrimp. And that setup right there, I mean, it gets both Chinook and Sockeye very, very well. Well, if you want to go fishing with Kyle Jones, and I'll tell you what, highly recommend him. He got me my personal best steelhead out of the Clearwater a few years ago. Just go to jonesportfishing.com. That's the website to book a trip, jonesportfishing.com, or look for Jones Sport Fishing on Facebook. You can see pictures of some of the fish that Kyle has been catching lately, and I definitely think that's going to get you motivated to book a trip. Kyle, thanks for the fishing report today. Thank you.
Evan Rudin Motor and Minn Kota Troller in Lowrance Fish Finder or two. We push off the dock just before five o'clock and go sailing off into the blue. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz, and I've got a question for you folks out there. Are some of you looking at buying your first boat, maybe a bass boat, or maybe your first walleye, muskie, crappie, or catfish boat? Well, if you are, I've got a guest who's got some great advice for you. His name is Steve Rogers. He is an outdoors writer, television host, the producer of a series of great bass fishing videos on YouTube, and... He also shares great articles at thebassfishinglife.com. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, John, for having me. So excited to be here. Well, Steve, I was on your YouTube channel, and folks, just look up Steve Rogers Outdoors to find that. And I really loved this video you made about buying your first bass, but wanted to share some of the highlights with our listeners. And I guess we're going to start off with the question of an aluminum boat versus a fiberglass boat for your first time. And we're going to stick mainly with bass boats here. Your first time bass boat buyer, or I guess you could say crappie or walleye buyer too, what do you recommend? That is a great question, John, and one of the reasons I put that in the video is because I've been very fortunate over the last couple decades to run both your tricked-out fiberglass boats, the ones that you see all the pros running, and then also your 18-foot aluminum bass boats as well, and it was a real eye-opener for me between the two and the line that separates the two has definitely become more blurred in recent years i mean it's not unusual to run an aluminum boat now that really hits close to the price point as some of your fiberglass models right but what i look at as far as which boat would be best for me in the waters that i fish most of the time is one you know what type of depth are we talking about? And what is the main structure makeup of the body of water that you fish a lot? If you've got a, a semi-shallow river, boy, it's not even going to be a question in my mind. I'm going to go with one of the all-welded aluminum models just because I like to get up close into cover and into rocks. And if I bump off some of that stuff with one of these you know, sturdy aluminum models, I'm not going to get all nervous and sweaty about it or, or not fish maybe where I would want to because I'm worried about popping a hole in the gel coat. I mean, I've been out there in those fiberglass boats and trying to run down a riprap bank and, you know, a boat wake pushes you or the wind pushes you and, you know, you just get into that panic mode. So if you've got some really thick cover, very rocky type of structure and more of a shallow system, I definitely favor the all-welded aluminum boats. Now, with that said, if you're on some bigger impoundments and reservoirs and you're going to be covering a greater distance, let's say, from the boat ramp, uh, it's hard to beat a fiberglass model because the added weight is a huge benefit when you're out there dealing with things like wind and other boats running around. It's definitely a more stable platform, you know, than your aluminum models. Let's talk about the outboard motor. I mean, you can see some sales sometimes where some really cheap boats are being offered, especially aluminum bass boats, but a lot of times they're powered by like maybe a 20, 25, or 40 horsepower motor, even though they're rated for much higher than that. What's your recommendation when it comes to an outboard motor for your first boat? John, that is an excellent question, and this is one area where I probably run across more frustrated or unsatisfied boat owners is because of the outboard. That's the first place where people look to 
cut costs. We know that boats can get expensive really quickly, and a lot of times we go into looking at a boat, and the first thing we ask is, you know, how much is this? What's it going to cost me per month? So my recommendation is always get the maximum horsepower that the boat is rated for. And if that is more than your personal budget would allow, my advice to a buyer is go down in size, maybe from a 21-footer to a 20 or a 20 to a 19, to hit the budget that's best for you, but definitely get the max rated outboard. One, you're going to be able to get the performance you want and run at the speeds that you want at lower RPMs, which is much, much easier, you know, on the mechanics of your motor. Uh, It's going to be more fuel efficient. You're going to go through less oil when you're running at a lower RPM. And as anglers, we pack way more weight into these boats than we probably ever should. I mean, I, I can never downsize enough. So we often have a ton of weight inside of these things. And we're going to want that extra horsepower, you know, to make sure we get our up on our whole shot. And just the, the all-around performance is going to be much, much better. You will notice an undersized outboard way more than you will notice losing an extra foot in length. All right, folks, you are listening to Steve Rogers, and you can check out his website at steverogersoutdoors.com and his great videos about bass fishing at Steve Rogers Outdoors on YouTube. Let's talk about something else here, the live well. Again, getting back primarily to aluminum boats, you can see some lower price point boats that have live wells, but they're not real big. What's the minimum size you should look for if you want to get into, like, tournament bass fishing at the club level? Once again, that is just another excellent question because care of fish is obviously a top priority, keeping our resource safe, and getting a live well that is each side on the left, right, you know, 15 gallons or more, or maybe if you've got one continuous live well that's got the divider in there for some of the aluminum models, the closer you can get to that 20-gallon mark is going to be much, much, much better. Live well systems have improved so much even just in the last 10 years, a lot of them have got cooling systems, even to the point where you can have a side compartment and put some ice in there, a bag of ice, and it will recirculate that water around the ice to help keep the water cool. But yeah, whatever budget you're looking for, if I was between two models and going to seriously do some tournament fishing, a considering factor would be which one has the larger live well in there. That additional weight from the few more gallons is not going to really affect your performance that much, but... But as far as the care of the fish, if they have more room in there, that is definitely a huge, huge plus, a big benefit. So in the aluminum models, try to get something, you know, 15 to 20 gallons. And then a lot of your bigger fiberglass models, they'll have 19, 20 gallons on each side. One last question. That bow-mounted electric trolling motor, you said on this video that the ones you get aren't necessarily the ones you want when it comes to buying your first boat from a dealer. Yeah, that is so true. As a matter of fact, I was just uh, at a dealer in the local area here last week, and they had a 21-foot fiberglass bass boat, and it only had a 50-pound thrust motor on there, and that is so undersized. One thing that you'll see oftentimes, you know, once again, going back to price point, is is people, you know, they want to try to avoid that sticker shock as far as the dealer end, but 
you spend 99% of your day, at least in the bass fishing world, up on that trolling motor, and you want to have one that is going to meet the performance that you are expecting. For example, when I had moved to an all-welded aluminum here a few years ago when my boys were younger and I didn't want them banging up my fiberglass boat, it came with a 46-pound thrust motor on there. Well, that was fine for a trolling motor if there was zero wind and no waves. It would do okay. (laughs) But you get the slightest bit of breeze, and it was way undersized. So I actually upgraded that one to an 86-pound thrust, and the performance is amazing. I could take it to a big river system like the Mississippi River, put the bow into the current, fish into the current like you should, and I can just walk right up the shoreline with that trolling motor now, which is better for boat safety, better for boat control, better for, you know, angling presentation. So when you go to purchase a boat, really, really be careful on the size of the trolling motor they put on there because oftentimes, in my experience, it's about the bare minimum in very calm conditions. If you fish rivers, if you fish more open bodies of water, you're going to want to probably upgrade that trolling motor. Folks, this is some great advice for buying your first bass boat or fishing boat, for that matter, from Steve Rogers. We've got to go, but if you want to find out more about what he has to say about bass fishing and boating, go to his YouTube channel. Just look for Steve Rogers Outdoors. He's got a website, too, steverogersoutdoors.com, and you can also check out bassfishinglife.com. Steve, we can't wait to get you on the air again on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. Shocking big bad making figure rates with musky spinners and lures. Oh, honey, I love you, and that's not a lie. Musky guides all tell the truth. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. And if you are hunting this fall, you know the importance of a sharp knife. You're going to need it for gutting that animal, butchering that animal, taking the hide off that animal, and there's a good chance you have to sharpen it more than once while you're doing these things in the field. That's why a pocket knife sharpener or the guided field sharpener from WorkSharp are great items to have with you. Whether you're after deer, elk, pronghorn, or bear... A sharp knife helps you get things done after you drop that animal. Look for WorkSharp products at sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you, or online at WorkSharpTools.com. That's WorkSharpTools.com. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display. Or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. Why book at Sportsman's Cove Lodge? Why is Alaska like no other place on earth? It hasn't changed in thousands of years. From the way you get here on a float plane to the way you go out with the guides and the boats, it's just a professional experience. And I said, this is as good as it gets. I said, if you can't catch fish here, you can't catch fish anywhere. Your experience with us will leave you speechless. Book now at alaskasbestlodge.com. country hunters and anglers. You may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, 
we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters, as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Walker Smith on the line. He's the managing editor for Wired to Fish, and he just wrote a great article that appeared at wiredtofish.com, The Five Huge Misconceptions About Fall Bass Fishing. Walker, it is great to have you on the air again. Thank you for having me, John. I appreciate it, man. So I want to go through some of these because I'll be honest, some of these misconceptions are beliefs I have personally held for years, and I'm going to start off with one right off the bat. When it comes to bass fishing, I have always believed, whether it's fall or any other time of year, that cold fronts are bad, that when a cold front comes in, the bite is going to shut off. You're saying that's not true. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've thought for a long time that for years or generations, really, we have these misconceptions in fishing. You know, our granddad had an idea about something. He told our dad, and then our dad told us, and we kind of hold that as fact. Some of them are fact, and some of them aren't. And as far as cold fronts go, I think they tend to uh, wake up the bass from that lethargic summer state that they've been in for so many months. And these bass are biologically programmed. It's in their DNA that... When that water temperature starts dropping just a little bit and these days get shorter, they realize, okay, it's about to turn to winter, and if I'm going to eat and get fat, I better do it now. So this is when we call it the fall feeding frenzy. That's when that happens, when you get these cooler nights and a little bit shorter days. It turns into just an awesome slugfest out there. Well, let's talk about another misconception. That has to do with the daytime highs. I've always believed that the best time to fish for bass in the fall is when the temperature's highest. I think that probably depends on specific lakes. I've seen different lakes act different ways. You know, no two lakes are going to be the same or two rivers or what have you. But in my area in the southeast, what's really worked well for me is looking at that five to ten day forecast, and I look at those overnight lows. Because the overnight lows tend to influence the water temperature a lot more than daytime highs do. So, you know, right now, for example, I'm looking ahead to see when I'm going to go fishing next. I'm looking ahead. I'm looking for high 40s, mid 40s at night instead of 60s at night. And you get two evenings of cool weather, two to three evenings, and that's really all you need. And again, it turns on those fish and they wake up and they're ready to eat. Walker Smith, you are rocking my bass fishing world, and you continue to do so with this article. Here's another one. And and I guess this one I didn't buy into full bore because I do still fish soft plastics in the fall. But I'll be honest, I'm usually a crankbait guy in the fall. That's kind of my go-to. And I haven't believed that the soft two baits and, and other plastics are nearly as effective. You're saying this is not the time to put away those soft plastics. Well, it's funny you say that, too, because I love crankbait fishing. That's probably my favorite thing on planet Earth, and I've caught the majority of my personal best bass on a crankbait. So I I don't put those up, but they're definitely still in the lineup. But if you think about it, as shad and other bait fish, they instinctively migrate to the shallows in the fall. 
And when they do that, the bass, of course, follow. Well, they congregate. All these shad and bait fish congregate. We throw your crankbait in there. It looks just like what they're eating, which is good normally. Right. But you can have too much of a good thing. So, you know, why would they eat something that's rattling and has hooks on it when they've got 10,000 other real things to eat instead? You know, if you were sitting at a dinner table and I put four cheeseburgers in front of you and one fake cheeseburger, you're probably not going to eat the fake cheeseburger. I don't know, Walker. So, the way you present it, I might, Walker. I know you're that good. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, so a lot of people overlook frog fishing this time of year with hollow belly topwater frogs. You know, as the vegetation mats out for the year, um, it's the thickest it's going to be right now. You know, hydrilla, willow grass, anything. And you can throw a frog over top that vegetation. And when I'm saying big blow-ups, I mean, you can go from catching schoolers, like you do with a crankbait, one and two pounders, right. to catching seven, eight, nine pounders on a frog. Oh, you were speaking my language. And, you know, it's funny because <laughs> I think most people think of frog season as summer, especially mm-hmm. mornings and evenings. But to know that you can do it pretty much all day in the fall if the weather's cooperating, that sounds fantastic. Now, you did bring up something that I found to be interesting. And, folks, again, we're talking to Walker Smith, the managing editor of Wired to Fish, about misconceptions about fall bass fishing. And apparently, I've been full of these misconceptions most of my life. Now, you live in the southeast. Georgia's your home state. You've got a lot of creeks that hold bass. So you've got, you know, the the slow-moving rivers, and then you've got the creeks, and a lot of folks fish the backs of creeks because they're shallow, and that's where the bait fish congregate. But you're saying that's not necessarily the best bet. Yeah, and, you know, and again, where I live gets a lot of fishing pressure. And, you know, especially because we actually don't get much fishing pressure in the summer because it's so dang hot. Right. I mean, it, our water temperatures get close to 100 degrees. Oh, jeez. And, yeah, it, it's brutal. And so right now is when we're getting a lot of fishing pressure. Everybody's enjoying this weather. And everybody's doing what you just talked about. Everybody's in the backs of the creek. And that's a great way to catch numbers, in my opinion. If you don't get to fish much and you just want to feel something pull back or you want to take your son or daughter fishing or your wife, husband, whatever, if you want to go fishing, that's a great way to go have fun. But if you want to catch big bass, I'm a huge believer that big bass live most of their life adjacent to deep water. Two Novembers ago, I'm looking at the reproduction on my wall right now. I caught a 13.14 pound bass on November 2nd. And I caught her in, I'd say, three feet of water. But with one kick of her tail, she could have been in 20 feet of water. Oh, wow. And, And those bass, again, it's in their DNA. They know that right now we have really volatile weather. It'll be cold one day, hot the next, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So these big, old, smarter bass, they like to live somewhere. They can easily adjust their living situation, right? So a cold front comes, she can get off that three-foot-deep stump and just slide out into 20-foot of water and ride out the cold front. And then when the cold front's over, she can come hang out right up that stump again and pick off any bluegill or shad that might be passing by. This isn't in your article, but I've got to ask, how did you catch that 13-pound bass on November 1st? I caught her on a Zoom baby brush hog on a Texas rig and on a little light wire 3 aught EWG hook. Um, I, I honestly had no business catching her. <laughs> I can right. tell you I'm I was su- good, I'm surprised you didn't just I bend I, the hook and go away. 
well, man, I'll make this story short, but I was, I hadn't caught any fish all day, and I ended up, my buddy was in the boat, and I was just talking to him. I was flipping at this one branch. We were just on a random conversation, and I was just kind of mindlessly flipping at this branch, and all of a sudden, I felt the slightest little pick. It felt like a little bluegill pick. Right. And when my line started moving, she started swimming away. She was swimming in an S shape because that big old head was just wallowing back and forth when she was swimming. Wow. I set the hook. I couldn't move her, and she came up and tried to jump and didn't even get her gill plates out of the water. Oh, my God. And um, I got her. I about threw up in the process. <laughs> I, I got her, and, uh, man, and she when I say skin hook, she was skin hooked through the roof of the mouth, like literally by the skin. Wow. If she'd have turned her head one more time, she'd have come off. And you mentioned you have a reproduction in your office. That means you slipped her loose to, to spawn again. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't keep these big bass. And, um, yeah, I, reproductions with technology and the craftsmanship these days, they're prettier than a skin mount anyway. So she's out there, and hopefully some little kid can go catch her one day. Well, I'll tell you what, folks. Great advice, as usual, from Walker Smith. There's one more misconception, but we're going to steer you to wired2fish.com. That's wired, the number two, fish.com. So you can read this article, get some more details, find out about that fifth misconception about fall bass fishing. If you're like me, you're going to become a better bass fisherman, or at least have some food for thought that's going to change your mind about things when you go fishing in the fall. The website again, wiredtofish.com. Sign up for the free newsletter. You'll be a smarter angler for it. Walker, thanks as always for sharing your knowledge with our listeners on America Outdoors Radio. I appreciate it, John, and thank you all for listening. Well, there you go. Four award-winning interviews with four fantastic guests. And believe me when I say this, it's not me that makes the show. It's the guests that make the show. So my thanks goes out to Walker Smith, to Steve Rogers, to Will Brantley, and Joey Putman for sharing their wisdom and sharing it so well on America Outdoors Radio. Until next time, remember this. It is your country and you're outdoors, so get out there and enjoy it. Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com. A sharp blade makes short work of any project you have in the outdoors, in the kitchen, or in the shop. Hone your knives and tools with quality power and manual sharpeners from WorkSharp. Find out more at WorkSharpTools.com. Hot summer nights mean hot morning fishing for sockeye here in the Northwest, and Max Lure Company has got what you need to catch a limit with the Double D Dodger and two great sockeye rigs. The Double D Dodger has a unique, fast, slow action and can be fished away from the boat without a side planer. The Cha-Cha Sockeye Rig and Double Whammy Sockeye Pro both feature a patented smile blade and two stout red hooks that won't let go of that salmon when it bites. Max Lure Company, getting you into the sockeye this summer. 
a seafood bounty is waiting for you on Northwest Oregon's Tillamook Coast. Catch a limit of big salmon, haul up a pot of delicious crab, plan your visit today at TillamookCoast.com. Don't leave yet. We've got one more local shot of fishing and hunting to wrap up the Pacific Northwest edition of America Outdoors Radio. You know what time it is. It's time again for another Max Minute brought to you every week by Max Lure. And with us again to talk sockeye fishing is Bob Loomis. Bob, great to have you back. Thank you, John. Last week, we talked about a great sockeye lure to use if you're trolling around in the Columbia River. This week, we're going to talk about a lure that you actually developed for steelhead fishing, but it's being used by sockeye anglers, especially by the Tri-Cities. Tell us more. Originally, the uh, Smile Blade Shrimp Rig was designed for some runs down in the lower river that were tremendous, tremendous steelhead runs coming up in the late spring, early summer time frame, and where these guys are, are anchoring up, and they're fishing with pill float, smile blades, little coon shrimp, you know, for these uh, steelhead fisheries, and this is a tremendous, tremendous tool for catching steelhead. But, as you stated, it kind of evolved into a real good uh, sockeye fishing lure because of the fact the guys uh, down in the uh, Tri-Cities area are actually fishing them in slots uh, anchored up and fishing them the exact same way, putting a little piece of coon shrimp on it, it's floated up off the bottom a little bit, and fishing, uh, you know, specific slots where fish are coming through. Well, the one you have here has got that smile blade, that pill float, and that hook all in the color red. Is that the main color we're selling here for the sockeye, or do other colors work too? Other colors work, but, you know, predominantly the hot pinks, the hot oranges, the hot reds, things of that nature work very, very well, especially all of your high UV colors. So whether you are after steelhead in the Columbia in the spring or early summer, or after sockeye in the heat of the summer, the Smile Blade Shrimp Rig is a great offering to use. And better still, you can fish it while you're on anchor, no trolling required. Look for it at maxlure.com or at sporting goods stores near you. That's all for this week, but don't worry. We'll do it all again next Saturday morning from 7 to 8, right here on Seattle's Sports Radio, KJR.